Good morning. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Holy God, author of life, through the power of your Holy Spirit, may we hear and understand what your word has to tell us today. Amen. The scripture today comes from Esther, chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, from the New Revised Standard Version. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that this in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such time as this, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for, for, such, a just, for such a time as this. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I, I do hope that you're aware. Um, we've got a number of church members that are on the walk to Emmaus. There's a men's walk going on. Uh, I believe uh, Tony Beret and Joe Reinhardt. Um, a pilgrim, yes, we're talking about people who are working it. And then we have one pilgrim who's on it, a participant, Lonnie Rathman. Um, and so Walk to Emmaus is a wonderful spiritual life retreat. You don't walk anywhere. I mean, people tend to think, well, I'd love to go on the Walk to Emmaus, but I don't walk very well. No, no, it's not about long distance walking at all. It's about a spiritual life retreat. Uh, it's been uh, wonderful. I went when I was uh, in college, uh, but it's a great way to kind of clarify what the faith means to you. Um, it's not an evangelistic thing. It's really just a chance to uh, help make leaders um, out of the church, uh, equip people. And so if you'd like to go on the walk to Emmaus, there's a women's walk coming up in late June, and then there's another men's walk uh, coming up, I believe, in October. And I'd be happy to sponsor you on those walks. One of the fundamental desires that we all have is meaning and purpose. We really want our lives to matter, to have significance. When I think about meaning and purpose, I often think about an old movie, um, it's about 15 years or so ago, about Schmidt. Uh, stars Jack Nicholson, and it is a story of Jack Nicholson, who's a recently retired uh, insurance middle manager. If you think when I say the word insurance middle manager, you go, yuck. I'm pretty sure that's what Jack Nicholson's character thought as well. He'd spent his whole life as uh, an insurance salesman, despite his well-intentioned efforts of uh, trying to make relationship and bring meaning and purpose into his life. Uh, he finds that uh, at this kind of stage in his life that he has burned most bridges. He has not cared about other people. The people don't care about him. Now, his, his wife loves him, but it's been a difficult road. And um, you know, now that he's retired, she's, he's all up in her business and it's just not a good picture. She wants him to get a hobby. Um, they have one daughter and um, you know, like all the other relationships, Schmidt hasn't done a very good job with it either. And so the daughter has moved to another state, set up shop there, met a guy, uh, married a guy and started a family. And, and Schmidt's really upset because he really doesn't like the guy uh, that she married. He's a waterbed uh, salesman. Uh, not that that means anything if you're a waterbed salesman, but um, you know, so Schmidt uh, just really, he's unhappy. He's alone, he's desperate, he's unhappy. And this story charts this kind of retirement period of his life. His wife dies, his daughter isn't returning his phone calls, and he finds himself alone and depressed and 
like some people who get alone and depressed, he begins to develop insomnia. And so he's up late watching TV all hours of the night. And, and you remember the Sally Struthers commercials, right? The feed the children with the emotional music and the pictures of African orphans who are um, beyond poverty and just suffering uh, from hunger. So he dials the 1-800 number. And, you know, just like it says in the ad, for a few pennies a day, he is able to bring food um, and uh, medical attention for this one particular orphan. And, and the organization sends him a whole packet with a photo spread and a, a map where um, Ndugu, N-D-G-U, Ndugu, uh, lives. And Schmidt is just, it, it's a new thing for him. I mean, he's caring for someone, I, I know it's, it's a pe- few pennies a day to feed a kid around the world, right? But he gets updates on how Ndugu is doing. And so um, he gets to the point where he decides he's going to write a letter, a series of letters to Ndugu. Uh, he, he's never met this child. He imagines that the kid can't read, much less read English, but he's going to write letters, and he writes. He writes about a, his deepest emotions. He writes about his uh, struggle with significance and, for dis, uh, and depression. Uh, he expresses his frustrations to Ndugu, who lives in a village uh, in Africa a world away. One of the letters um, that he writes uh, literally says, I am weak and I am a failure. There's just no getting around it. Relatively soon, I will die. I'm like, Ndugu, if you could read this, is this really helpful? Um, Maybe in 20 years I'll die. Maybe tomorrow I'll die. It doesn't matter because once I'm dead and everyone who knew me when I was alive are dead, no one will remember me. And what will my life matter? There will be no significance. I will have made no difference at all in a letter to Ndugu. And so he continues to write these letters, and a very fascinating thing happens. He gets a letter in return. It's handwritten. It has the return stamp of the um, African country where Ndugu lives. He opens up the letter and he reads it, and it is from a Catholic sister, a nun, who's responsible for the care of a group of orphans, uh, the group of orphans that Ndugu lives in. And she writes back to him and says, thank you. Thank you for writing letters to Ndugu. Ndugu is unable to read, much less able to read English, but he has placed your letters on the walls of his room where he lives in the orphanage, that he celebrates every time he gets a letter from you, that he has drawn you a picture and wanted me to send it to you. Ndugu says he thinks about you every day, and he is thankful because your support came at a time when he had an eye infection, and your pennies a day helped allow him to get medical attention. Ndugu's life has been changed because of your care. This is an earth-shakening experience for Jack Nicholson's character, Warren Schmidt. I mean, in retirement, Schmidt has tried everything possible. He even showed back up at work to try to help the younger insurance sales middle manager with his job, but he was rebuffed because nobody wants Schmidt around anymore. He has found that he has done a horrible job at life, that much of his life has counted for nothing. 
that his relationships with his family, his workmates, his friends are largely broken and dysfunctional, that retirement, which was supposed to be enjoyable, has turned out to be a big sham. Except that one bright spot, that one bright spot of random acts of kindness, of a Sally Struthers commercial in the middle of the night, of a few pennies a day to feed Ndugu. I, you know, I know this is a strange way to open a sermon, but like, there's a little seed of all of us in Schmidt's story. There's a little seed of wondering, what is it all about? What is the significance? What is the purpose? And I think oftentimes we imagine that it's the hero who wins the day. And so we think about the Mother Teresas, and we think about the Winston Churchills, and we think about all of these amazing heroes of the faith and how they made such a big difference. And then there's us and we're not sure what it's about. When I think about calling and purpose, I think about the story of Esther. If you want to read a strange book of the Bible, a book of the Bible that God's in it, but not necessarily mentioned, uh, the the balance of the future, I mean, God saves the day, but but it's, it's really about people in the midst of a strange culture. You should read the book of Esther. Esther's a Jewish girl, and she lives in Persia. She's been drafted into the harem of King Xerxes, the great king of Persia. Um, Persia, for your uh, geographic and geopolitical mind, is the 800-pound gorilla in the ancient Near East. Whatever Persia wants, Persia gets. Persia is strange in so many ways. When you think about King uh, Xerxes of Persia, he is just an alien compared to everybody else. The Jews have been carried off into exile, and so there's a number of them. In fact, uh, Esther's uh, adopted uncle Mordecai has become an advisor to the king. There's a tragic event where the current queen walks into the king and gives him a piece of her mind. She got fired, um, probably got killed as well. And then, this is a strange relationship between a king and a queen, Xerxes then decides that he's going to interview for a new queen, and his harem is kind of like his farm team. And so he, the best way I can describe it, he holds um, a America's Got Talent kind of version to find out who will be the next queen. And Esther, who's kind of kept it quiet that she's a Jew, ends up winning the contest and becomes the new queen. Now, Mordecai is uh, one of the advisors. Haman, who's his arch enemy, is the other advisor. And Haman doesn't like Mordecai. And instead of Haman doing something surgically evil to get rid of Mordecai, um, Haman kind of paints with a broad brush and decides to convince the king to kill all of the Jews in the kingdom. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, Esther, you're the queen you got to tell the king that if he kills all the Jews, he'll be killing his wife. He loves you so much. I mean, you interviewed for the job, right? Uh, um, <clears throat> and, and Esther says, no, did you not read the newspaper? The last queen pulled this and she's no more. I don't think it's a good idea. And our scripture passage is Mordecai's response to Esther after she says, uh-uh. I'm not doing that. And so Mordecai says, do not think because you are in the king's house, 
You alone of all the Jews will escape murder. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Let let, let me translate that, right? Mordecai says, don't think you're safe because you're the queen. See, Mordecai isn't thinking, oh my goodness, we will not be delivered. No, he's a Jew who loves the living God, Jehovah. He knows that deliverance is coming. But if Esther decides to be quiet, when that deliverance comes, most likely she and her family will die. And so he says, it's for such a time as this that you might have been placed in the royal house. And of course, the The story ends well. Um, Esther takes the risk, gains an audience with the king, tells the evil intentions of Haman. Uh, The king's response is rapid. Haman is uh, hung uh, till death on the very gallows that had been erected for Mordecai. The Jews are saved. Mordecai is elevated to Xerxes' second in command. And Esther, once a poor Jewish child, has now saved her people from certain destruction. Esther's a great example of just a normal person who found circumstances that came together that God could use to make a difference in the world. I don't know if it's helping, but I'm trying to make the argument that you don't have to be Winston Churchill or you don't have to be a Mother Teresa, that there are a ton of Warren Schmitz in the world today and we can make a difference, that we are called by God to make a difference. I want to say that um, God has called you. Uh, Let me be more clear. I I was a child of the 80s. Um, Back in the day when uh, a handwritten letter from someone meant something, I remember when mom would come in from getting the mail. Uh, Back then it wasn't filled with all of that junk mail that you just kind of throw away. And she would say, oh, look at this. Someone has written to Junior Master Peter Camerano. Why don't you go see who it is? I mean, it never failed that it might be from my grandmother, and it was money from Easter. You know, five bucks for the resurrection was a big deal back then. I mean, it was exciting. It was even back in the day when you could get a phone call, and, you know, people actually, you know, instead of going, what? You know, they would actually say, hello, my name is, may I speak to, and it wasn't a telemarketer. I remember when I got a phone call for the first time. Whoa! So remember back to those days. God has called you chosen you, not because of what you have done or what you will do, but because of who you are. God loves you. You have intrinsic value. Now, God's got a number of calls for you, and I want you to uh, take some messages and do some actions, right? God has called you first just to know that you are loved. God has called you second to follow Jesus. And God has called you thirdly to partner with God to make the world a better place. And I know it feels like there's a lot to do in the world, right? You might feel like there are chores to do if you're a student. You might feel like there are bills to pay if you're a parent. You might feel like there is just so much to do. How in the world will I make time to follow God and to partner with God to get stuff done? 
But I want to say that this is where we find our meaning and our purpose. This is where we find our true identity. I, I don't know about you, but I get asked often, who, who, what are, um, tell me about yourself. And I'll say, I'm a pastor, right? Probably you say, you're a teacher or an engineer or a stay-at-home mom, right? Now, it used to be I had an opportunity to fly uh, a number of times uh, throughout the year to do uh, consulting and teaching at conferences. It was wonderful. And I would sit down um, initially. I, I got convicted of this, but I would sit down and someone asked me, uh, what do you do for a living? And I would say, I'm an uh, executive director of a nonprofit who works in middle-class neighborhoods to teach tradition and values and good behavior. We work with all ages, both children, youth, and adults, and we try to make a difference. We are community organizers. And they'd go, wow, and we'd talk for the whole flight. And then a friend of me told me that that's not fair, that you haven't mentioned God or Jesus once, and you're an ordained pastor, you should change that bit. And so uh, the next time I sat down in, in an uh, airline seat and somebody sat down next to me and said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a pastor. And they suddenly found such meaning and interest in the in-flight magazine that they didn't talk to me. Right? I mean, it's interesting, right? Am I just a pastor or is there more to me? Are you just an engineer or a teacher or a financial services person? Is there more to you than just what your profession is? Because here's the secret. When you retire, are you still that something or now are you nothing? How does that identity work in terms of profession and calling? I want to say that God has called you since God knitted you together in your mother's room. The psalmist, Psalm 139, says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knew us in our mother's womb before our form was revealed. It's not because of what you do or what you can do. God loves you for who you are, for the intrinsic value of you. And so when we get called, it's, it's more than just our profession. It's more than just our career. It's an opportunity to change the world and to make the world a different place. I want to give you three big buckets to kind of consider about calling. Three kind of steps or helps or pushes in the right direction. I want to tell you, uh, first of all, that God calls you not out of what you will do, but out of the connection of spending time with you. That God's first interest is relationship, not outcome. Now, I remember, you know, the, some of the best times I spent with my dad were times when we went and did a task together. It was not about the task. It was about the time together. God desires connection with you first. If you've been resisting calling, quit resisting. God's not interested in your productivity. God is interested in who you are. Calling is about fit. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm in a phase, uh, you know, after turning 40, where no shoe really fits the right way. I don't know what it is, right? It could be a lot of things. And I'll get new shoes, and they're good for about three months, and I'm like, I want some more. These don't feel right. And Amy will say, you know, you should be able to get about two years out of those shoes. And I'm like, ah, three months. It's about fit. Just something doesn't fit just right in those shoes. And, and I don't want to say that calling is about fit, if you keep thinking, I'm resisting calling because uh, God is going to send me to Africa, you have missed the boat. God is not interested in sending you somewhere strange. God is interested in you fitting into the plan right where you are. 
Remember God knit you together in your mother's womb, that there's a sense of a unique psychological DNA, this kind of gifts and talents and skills of who you are, just like you are, that God would love to use right where you are. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't push us into, out of our comfort zones, but God just wants to use you where you are. Fit is an important part of calling. The more you can learn about yourself, the more you can understand God's call uh, Oz Guinness, he writes the book, The Call. It's on the back of the Order of Worship. It's one of those books that I've suggested if you're interested in further um, uh, learning, further study. He writes, God normally calls us along the lines of our giftedness, but the purpose of giftedness is stewardship and service, not selfishness. You do that thing you do, that superpower so well th th that it's not about what you can make or do or become famous with it. It's about how you can fit into God's plan. I want to say that connection and fit, working together, that it's an important thing for us to read the Bible, that for us to connect with God, we have to know who God is. And if we want to fit into God's plan, we've got to know what God's plans are. And so one of the most important things you can do at any level of faith development is open up the Bible and read it. Yeah, I know that sounds really kind of Captain Obvious, but no, seriously, reading it. And so if you've not opened the Bible in a long time, where could you read? Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, the creation story. It's beautiful. You could also start reading uh, the Gospel of Mark. It is the gospel that uses the word immediately the most number of times. It's Mark's favorite transition. Immediately they went, right? So if you're kind of short attention span theater like I am, read the Gospel of Mark. Immediately is your friend. Those are two places to begin to learn about who God is and to learn about what God's plans are so that you can have the connection with God and the fit with God. Lastly, I want to talk about encouragement. Part of an aspect of calling is that it never happens alone. I, for a certain uh, age in the uh, house today, I'm going to say an illustration and it'll work for you. And if you're younger than some of them, it won't work for you. Even the Lone Ranger was not a Lone Ranger. He had Tonto, right? And so calling never happens to one person in isolation, I, you know, we've had so many people come out of this church and go into ministry, and you've been part of the encouragement of their calling, that it's not just they hear from God that God has a plan for them, but it's that you tell them they have the gifts and graces. You show the fruit of what they're able to do. You are part of the call because you encourage them into their next step so that they might be who God's called them to be. It's not just true for people who go into vocational ministry. It's true for pew sitters. It's true for Team, ministry team members. It's true for greeters, for ushers. It's true for folk who come up on a work day to clean up the church. Encouragement of gifts is part of calling. What are people telling you that you do good around here? It might give you an insight to calling. I want to close with just uh, an illustration. Um, I spent yesterday uh, keynoting the youth, uh, the Texas Annual Conference's Youth Retreat for Leadership. This is a every year leadership retreat where they teach them about their uh, fit, their psychological DNA. I did that part with about 30 kids yesterday morning. We used the Berkman method as a personality assessment. Uh, and so together they got to figure out exactly how God wired them together for good. 
And then in the afternoon, we uh, took the same group uh, of kids that had had that experience last year, and we taught them about community organizing. It was great. We asked them to think about an issue, to isolate a problem, to think about collaborators around the problem, that they could make an intervention that would make a difference in the problem. Then we had them measure the difference and then figure out who are you going to sell that change to. And it was fascinating. We broke them up into groups. This one girl was so self-revealing, she talked about, we were talking about attitudes towards mental health and mental illness, and she um, said to the group in her presentation that she had spent time in a psychiatric hospital, and so if anyone understands what people need in terms of mental health, it's her, she's been through all of it, and she comes up with this unique plan. She says, our nonprofit, uh, much like you hear about people getting boxes, right? They'll uh, fill out information about their style and their sizes, and um, you know, they'll get a monthly box about you know, clothes they could wear or related to their hobby or whatever. She says, we're going to put together wellness mental health boxes. We will flavor them based upon what diagnosis, whether it's mood disorder, anxiety, whether it's depression, uh, whether it is um, you know, uh, um, any of those pieces uh, that are a part of our lives. Um, they learned that one quarter of adults, uh, one out of four, 25% of the American population struggle with a mental health illness. So we're gonna provide monthly boxes. And in the box, it'll have um, you know, a stress reduction candle, and it'll have a, a wellness book, and it'll have some tips to handle an another episode of uh, you know, bipolar or manic, manic depressive. She says, um, I, I said to her after I picked my jaw up off the ground, because like, dude, is this not a diamond in the rough idea? I thought it was amazing. Um, and there were all of those ideas about how to change the world. So I told these juniors and seniors to end the day about my cousin Claire, or my niece Claire. Um, she's the cutest little eight-year-old. She's got um, big blonde curls. She uh, lives with her parents out, um, uh, um, uh, out in the country on 100 acres. They have um, horse, uh, they have a horse, they have um, uh, uh, dogs, they have uh, chickens, they have a rooster, I mean, you name it, it's old McDonald come to the farm. And uh, over Lent, right, both of her parents are ordained Methodist pastors, over Lent she decided that what she would do is she would add to the world by drawing pictures with crayons and finger paints, you name it, eight-year-old art, and she would sell them, and the money, 100% of the proceeds would go to the local animal hospital. She's one of those kids that you just know is going to be a veterinarian, right, loves all kinds of animals. They have a horse, it's a boy horse, she named it Lovey. It is the most patient horse I've ever seen. Right? So she's a smart salesperson. She twists the arm of every family member that comes through um, to visit uh, during Lent and Easter and sells uh, six paintings at $10 a pop. And she's good, you know? And how do you refuse a cute eight-year-old that says, don't you want to help uh, you know, animals? Well, she decided over Easter weekend that she was going to up it a little bit. She was going to let the animals make the art. And so they went out and, you know, Lovey is used to getting new shoes. And so pulled up Lovey's feet, put paint on Lovey's um, uh, bottom of Lovey's feet. And Lovey walked across some paper that, were, that was in the middle of his stall. And it ain't art until Claire, my niece, calls it art. And then it's worth 20 bucks. <laughs> She's on track to giving $120 this next month to the local animal hospital. When she gave the 60 bucks, um, the director of the hospital came out, they took a picture, it got in the newspaper. I mean, the kid knows how to sell her effectiveness change, right, into marketing for the next change. So if she does 120 every month for 12 months, I'm not good at math, but that's $1,440 that'll make a difference in the animal hospital that's in her neck of the woods.
She's eight years old. I told these juniors and seniors, don't you think you could make change like she does? And I want to say to you, don't you think you could be called to make change as well? It's not hard once we realize uh, that God's not interested in our outcome, God's interested in relationship, and that God has been planning for us to fit in God's plan. All we got to do is learn who God is and what God's plans are, and then be willing to hear the encouragement around us as to how God's called us. All of us are called to make a difference. And I just want to go back to Esther and Schmidt. I just want to go back to Warren Schmidt, played by Jack Nicholson who at the end of his life does not understand what the significance is until he stumbles upon the power of random acts of kindness, small little things that make the world a different place, pennies a day to feed Ndugu until Ndugu replies with a letter of his own. Sure, Esther could have kept quiet, but God's deliverance would have come from someplace else. Could it be that for such a time as this, You find yourself in Lake Jackson. You find yourself in God's house here in Chapelwood. You find an opportunity to make a random act of kindness that changes the world. And more importantly, it changes you. May we hear God's call today. And may we respond. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.